Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. This episode is brought to you by you. Thank you to those of you who have become patrons of the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. For less than the cost of a dive tank refill or a cup of coffee, you can help keep the podcast episodes coming. There's also some fun bonuses for patrons, so be sure to check those out at patreon.com backslash marine bio life. That's patreon.com backslash marine bio life. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's show. I have a listener-supplied joke for you today. Have you heard the whale joke? It's a real kriller. Why are blue whales blue? Because they have blue genes. Science writer, marine scientist, and published author Julie Burwald joins us on the show today. Starting with an undergrad in mathematics, Julie's career bloomed into a PhD in marine science before turning to science writing. Her work has been featured in National Geographic magazine, Oceanus, Red Book, Wired.com, and the New York Times. Her latest book, Spineless, dives deep into the world of jellyfish. Reading this book, I personally learned lots of surprising details about this ethereal creature. In today's episode, Julie shares how one snorkel trip made her math major make sense and completely change the trajectory of her life. We chat about the merits of getting a master's and a PhD degree, and Julie takes us back to her college days conducting flow tank experiments in an underground swimming pool below a college basketball court. We also chat about ocean acidification and what it means, how to become a published author, and of course, all about jellies, including what to do if you get stung. Please enjoy. Julie, welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. I'm so excited to have you on. Thank you so much for having me, Kara. It's great to be here. Awesome. So you have had a really cool career. You've been a marine biologist and you've become a writer. What got you into marine biology in the first place? Um, yeah, I was, I, was never, I was never really into biology. I, um, when I went to college, I was sort of one of those people who liked everything. And um, I had a roommate who was a, just an incredible writer. Her name's Margaret Stoll. She's actually written like a dozen books now. She's mostly a young adult writer. And she was such a good writer that she intimidated me like away from the whole humanities side of the world. <laughs> and so, and I became a math major just almost out of fear, <laughs> like not wanting to compete with someone who was such a great writer. Um, and then when I was a junior, I went to Israel for a study abroad program. And I was I, I, like, I did all these things out of fear. It's very, when I say it like this, but I was um, miserable basically in Israel. <laughs> and um, I saw this like notice on the wall for a marine ecology course down in a lot, which is in the Red Sea, which is kind of the Northern tip of the Indian ocean. And I, I was like anything for a change. So I, I signed up for the course and went down to the Red Sea and they basically like slapped a mask on our face and gave us some fins and said, go look. And we, I stuck my face in the water and saw this coral reef. 
And I couldn't believe that I lived on the same planet with that, you know, that incredible beauty and complexity and just life. And uh, I got out of the water and we went into our first lecture and it was the lack of Volterra equations, which are like these equations that explain um, about population sizes, what makes populations grow and shrink. And I was like, math actually applies to biology? Like what? <laughs> and I, I suddenly felt like, oh, the whole reason I was a math major has become clear. And I just, from that moment on, I wanted to figure out how to learn more biology and use the math that I'd been studying to understand biology better. So that was really the story of getting into it. That's awesome. Yeah. I love that that one snorkel trip. And I read that in your book as well. Just one snorkel trip just totally changed how you viewed your career and your your current degree and kind of change the trajectory of where you were going. So it really, yeah. Isn't that weird? Just one little thing. I think about all, that all the time, how one thing can change so much that comes after. It's, it's, a, it's poetic, actually. It, yeah, it's also like basically the plot of many movies. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it's true, but movies are based off of real life a lot of times. Right? Yeah, right. That's you can't true. make some stuff up, so. <laughs> So what came after this pivotal experience for you? Yeah, so I went back to college and I couldn't switch my major to biology because I was already a senior. And um, so I actually, I decided what I wanted to do was biomechanics mm -hmm. and um, because that was math and biology mixed together. Um, and so I went to, I got myself a summer job at Woods, the Marine Biological Lab in Woods Hole mm -hmm. in the marine ecology summer course. And, you know, for anyone who is thinking about becoming a marine biologist, I mean, not right now, because we're sort of, who knows what's going to happen this summer, but <laughs> the, those summer courses at marine biology labs, I think are fantastic opportunities to just really dive in if, if you could make that happen for yourself. Mm -hmm. um, I, w I couldn't sign up for the course, so I was basically like the dishwasher and coffee maker for the <laughs> course. <laughs> and, um, but it was amazing. I got to sit in on all the lectures and um, I met all these graduate students in marine biology, so I got to find out what that was like. And I, um, I went back to college my senior year. So yeah, so I did that between my junior and senior year and my senior year. Like I said, I couldn't change my major, so I did like I talked to the this biology professor into letting me do an independent study on coral and biomechanics my whole senior year. Mm. And yeah, and I found this. Um, I went to Amherst College, which is this small liberal arts college in Massachusetts, and they didn't have a marine biology any marine biology classes or anything. Mm -hmm. But um, I found that there was this old flow tank in the bottom of a building that had used to be a gym, like a, the place where they had basketball and water polo. Uh, like that's where they played their, their events, you know, their games there where people was, so there were risers. And then there was this floor where, which when it was closed was a basketball floor. And when it was open was a water polo pool. And, it was drained, the pool was drained. 
and in the bottom of the pool were these float tanks. And so <laughs> there was like a way you could crawl between the basketball floor and, and, the, and the swimming pool, like walk down the steps of the swimming pool and get to these float tanks. And I set up these experiments in there about how fast, <laughs> how fast um, water diffused around corals. And I put coral skeletons in and injected them with dye and did these timing experiments. And so I was trying to figure out like flow rates around corals. Um, and awesome. So I'm envisioning you literally just in, in a co college gymnasium with the basketball floors like closed over you. So you're kind of in a exactly. cave playing with float tanks and corals. Yeah. in like the, basically the deep end of what used to be a swimming pool. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. <laughs> so I did that and that was really good. And actually, and it gave me like some experience with experiments and failing, which I did a lot. Uh, it's important. Yeah, feeling is, is hugely important. And then I applied to grad school and I didn't get in. Well, actually, that's not true. And the whole story is that I, I freaked out and I was like, I can't be a marine biologist. No one's a marine biologist. And so I got myself a job as an accountant um, with a big accounting, big six firm. And I did that for like eight months and I realized my soul was being sucked out of my body. Mm. And I, I, came, I came home one day and I was like curled up in a fetal position on the floor of my apartment. And my roommate walked in and she was like, you need to go be a marine biologist. <laughs> so, so then I started applying to grad school and it was very difficult for me to get into grad school. I, I don't know if it's as difficult today as it was then. Um, but I, I, I couldn't, I really didn't get in right away at all. Um, and I, I didn't have a biology degree. Like I said, I had a math degree mm -hmm. and I'd done like a few, I mean, good thing that I'd done a few of these little courses cause I could sort of. I mean, you could put Woods Hole on your resume. Yeah, I could. Or something. Yeah, and I could put that independent study thing I did on my resume too, but you know, there, I guess I, I, it almost, felt like, and I'm not sure if it's the same way, and maybe you know more, um, you had to almost have a connection to someone to get into grad school. Like you had to have a professor who you went, worked with as an undergraduate to tell you, oh, go talk to this professor in grad school and maybe they'll get, get you into their lab. Um, I, I do know for grad school now, it does help if you have a, prior connection and it doesn't necessarily have to be like you worked with them in your undergrad it could be you like their research and so you communicated with them about it and then kind of uh, showed your interest in their work and said you know I'd really like to come work with you as a grad student and it's kind of like a it's an agreement between you guys and then mm -hmm. and then you apply to that school to work with that professor it's kind of one of the one of the ways that I've heard now is how to get in yeah, and I, I think that was very similar then. So I needed connections. And so I got myself another job at Woods Hole um, with a professor who eventually gave me an assistantship at, at the University of Southern California. It was like half of an assistantship. Mm. So I, I was making, and I think like you, nuts and bolts wise, like I think I, it was like a $10,000 a year job. It was, like, it was, but it was more than anything else I had. 
Right. So I went um, and I had I, I got to him through a contact at the Marine Biological Lab. Um, so I flew out, I drove out to LA. I was in, still in Massachusetts. I drove out to LA and- um, A heck of a drive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a heck of a drive. And then I um, started working for this. I was so, I was living in these decrepit places with cockroaches everywhere. And, um, but I started working in his lab and he did some marine ecology modeling. So my math was coming in handy. And while I was there, I applied to grad school for, um, for biomechanics and I didn't get in. But I met um, another professor at USC whose name is Dale Kiefer, who, and we just clicked. Like, it was amazing. Like, we just, our personalities clicked. We just started talking about, he also does modeling, um, marine ecology modeling. And it was just super easy to talk to him and to work with him. And so he accepted me. We made this agreement, like you're saying, he accepted me into his lab. And then I applied and got in at USC. So that was the, that's the kind of longest I've ever told that story, but um, that's how it happened. Yeah, I mean, it's, it was uh, very illustrative. I think it's good for people to realize that grad school isn't always a straight path. Like I graduate from my undergrad and while I'm graduating, I apply for grad school and that's just what I do. It's, mm. It takes some time to figure out and you don't always jump into it right away. So yeah, and, and I might say one more thing. I mean, and this is sort of the truth of the matter. Like, it's really important, I think, that you do click with your advisor if you go to grad school. Um, I mean, I know tons of stories of people from my own grad school experience who, who didn't get along great with their advisors, and it's a very close relationship you have with them. Mm -hmm. um, they are, you know, basically they hold the keys to your future in a lot of ways. So um, I'm really happy I think that if there is a way to sort of intern or work with or spend some sort of field season with someone before you commit, it's probably a good thing. It seems like it might slow you down, but in the end, um, I think it's pretty important. And like, I just actually had a Skype call with my, with Dale yesterday. Mm -hmm. And even though I'm not doing research anymore, like we just fall right back into talking about science and what he's doing. And it's, it's one of, the most rewarding relationships I've had in, in my life, probably. So That's great. Um, yeah, great advice. So what were you doing for your uh, graduate degree? What were you studying? You said models with Dale. Yeah, so I couldn't do biomechanics, which is what I really wanted to do. And I, um, but Dale worked on Saturday. He was working. Well, he's a, he was a photosynthesis person. Mm -hmm. um, and we were working on he had worked, he had been very influential in discovering that when um, phytoplankton photosynthesize, so, you know, in the ocean, in, we don't, have, there's no trees or anything. So all of the photosynthesis is lar largely done by these single-celled plankton that, that can, are basically have a little chloroplast or have a bunch of chloroplasts in them and can take the sun's energy and carbon dioxide and make sugar out of it. And it's just this sort of, I mean, the idea that that happens is, is to me brilliant. Um, but along the way, it turns out that this was the, a time when we were getting our first satellite images of the ocean. Mm. And it was before, before that, the way that we 
calculated how much photosynthesis was going on in the ocean was we would go out in a boat and take a bottle, <laughs> like take a, these, these long cables and drop them down into the ocean. And, and at certain places along the cables, there were these bottles called Niskin bottles, and you could trip them electronically and they would snap closed, capturing the water at whatever depth the bottle was at. And then you haul those back up and you drain up, well, you open them up carefully and you get water out of them and then you filter that water. And um, on the filter, you capture all those phytoplankton and then you'd measure them to see how much chlorophyll was in there. And chlorophyll was a measure of how much photosynthesis was going on. I hope that wasn't too complicated. Um, and, or you could actually use radioactivity to measure how much oxygen was made or how much sugars were made to, to exactly know how much photosynthesis was on. But um, the problem was it was like a dot, dot, dot across the ocean because <laughs> you're, you're having to stop your boat, measure, then move somewhere else, stop your boat, measure. But with satellites, we got this like view of the ocean. You know, it was like this map. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden you could see just how complicated the ocean was with all these eddies and currents and rivers coming in and all of that influenced the complex, you know, how much photosynthesis was going on. And so it was just this really exciting time. And we were using, we were trying to come up with equations to go from those satellite pictures of the ocean to photosynthesis. And it was actually, uh, the question we were trying to answer was how much carbon dioxide is photosynthesis pulling out of the atmosphere? So it was, it was at a time when we already knew climate change was an issue. And this was in the 90s. I mean, it was just not even controversial at all. And the question was, how much can the oceans help us absorb carbon dioxide to you know, counteract all the carbon dioxide we're putting in from burning fossil fuels? And um, so I was working on equations to kind of uh, interpret those satellite images. Amazing. It's amazing yeah. that you're doing that in the 90s, and I feel like a lot of that is still going on. Yeah, well, it, you know, the story is actually, I think it's kind of interesting. So we were doing that, and then Dale, um, he got, um, he had a sabbatical, and he went to Italy to work at FAO, which is the Food and Agricultural Organization. They do a lot of really cool fisheries research and um yeah, so if you're ever, if you're someone who's interested in fisheries, FAO is a great resource. Um, it's a United Nations agency. So Dale got a job to kind of combine these satellite images with some of the fisheries work. Hmm. And I ended up going to Italy um, and living with his family <laughs> over the summers. Um, and in Italy, it was, you know, in Europe, there was, no controversy over climate change. So it was just like in the United States in the early 90s. But I remember coming back one summer, like coming back after one summer, like it was the fall of, I think like 96. And all of a sudden, climate change was called into question here in the United States. And I was like, what? Really? <laughs> like, I didn't see that science. Like, where did that come from? And and it was just, um, now I understand that it was this misinformation campaign starting, but at the time I was like, well, maybe there was some science I wasn't aware of, or I was just very, very confused by it. 
Right. Um, and still in Europe, there was no questions. Like it, it was still very well accepted in Europe. So it's interesting. I still think back on those times as this strange, strange times. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I had uh, kind of the beginning of a diversion almost. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So now was this, you were working at USC with Dale, you were working on your master's or was this working all the way to, towards your PhD? Yeah, I just decided to work on directly to my PhD. Mm -hmm. um, and again, I want to say, I don't know if that was the smartest move. <laughs> um, I mean, like I said, luckily Dale and I really clicked. And so that was great. But um, I think the master's, and I don't think I understand, I think I was always kind of like a little bit of an overachiever. And so I'm like, oh, I don't need a master's. But um, I think the master's is actually extraordinarily useful mm -hmm. in marine science. And I want to say that um, a lot of my friends from grad school who got master's ended up doing ex really, really interesting things. Um, and, and I might have... A couple of examples. Yeah, like one of them, she started a nonprofit, or she doesn't, she's the executive director of a nonprofit of um, like a prairie conservation group in, well, she just, she left that job recently, but she was the executive director of a prairie conservation group. She lives in Illinois. Mm -hmm. And um, so it does like really cool things, lobbying the government for extended protections of prairie lands. And then she just moved to Nebraska because her husband got a new job. And now she's the um, executive director of the Audubon in Nebraska. Uh, I don't know if it's just in Lincoln, but a, a large region around Lincoln. So she has, she just, she does really cool things with her life. Another one of my friends um, was an inspiration for me to become a science writer. And he, he also left with a master's. He now is the head of the um, science writers, science writing program at Stanford University. Hmm. So uh, another friend of mine, you know, he got his master's in marine science, but then decided he wanted to be a physical therapist and now owns a really successful physical therapy uh, clinic in Seattle. So, you know, I, that he did, he fell off the marine biology path, but I just, I think to some extent, masters allow you to really understand the field mm -hmm. and be a little more flexible in what you decide to do in the field. Um, I don't know. I agree. And I think that what PhDs carry a lot of weight and they can almost overqualify you for some positions, particularly field positions. Yeah. Like, well, we just need somebody to go out in the field and collect data. You have a PhD. It seems like a lot. Yeah. PhD is a huge slog also. I mean, it takes at least seven years. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and again, like I ended up falling out of academia. So I have maybe a different perspective on the PhD. <laughs> but, um, and so I think that anyone who's listening should take that with a grain of, of right. salt, you know. Um, but I'm, I so mean. What were some things that the PhD did open up for you? I, I mean, you've done a lot of science writing and I feel like your degree 
helped get your foot in the door, at least with that, because having those three letters behind your name is, does carry weight. It does carry weight. That is true. And I mean, I think that when I do interviews, you know, one of the things I love about being a science writer now is, is talking to scientists. I mean, I mm -hmm. love science. I find science just the most fascinating thing in the world. And I find the marine science the most fascinating thing. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, and I will say like the thing I, I love is, is talking to scientists and finding out about their research and what they're doing. And, and so I think sometimes when I, say, yeah, I have a PhD. It does allow scientists to talk to me more freely. They, mm -hmm. They're not holding back in terms of the complexity of their work. Mm -hmm. And um, that is extraordinarily useful for me now. So yes, there is that. That is huge. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if the fact that I have a PhD helped me like publish my book very much but yeah I think you know like I said I think it's mostly that during interviews I can get I can get great information from scientists awesome so speaking of your book what inspired you to write about jellies story is so I felt like I said I fell out of academics and I started writing textbooks and then I sort of chanced into this little job writing some pieces for National Geographic um, and they asked me to sort of fact check this story on ocean acidification that Elizabeth Colbert wrote. And she is the person who wrote The Sixth Extinction, which won a Pulitzer Prize. So she's an incredible science writer. Um, but in that story, there was a graphic and it said winners and losers in a future acidified world. And let me just back up and say what ocean acidification is. Yeah. Um, Carbon dioxide in our atmosphere doesn't just hold heat. It also mixes with water in, uh, on the surface of, at the surface of the ocean. And when it does, it makes the ocean a little more acidic. The ocean's pH has historically been around 8.3, which is actually a little alkaline. It's already at 8.2, which is more acidic, and it's expected to go down and the pH scale is kind of like a Richter scale. So every point, you know, every, every change is, is an exponential change. It's a much bigger change. So what you'll see is that like the ocean is 30% more acidic now than it used to be. Mm -hmm. um, and acid can dissolve shells or mm -hmm. kind of chemically make it harder for animals that have shells to build their shells. So in this graphic, it said that things with shells like mollusks and coral and echinoderms, sea stars, um, would have, I think there was something else, I can't remember in the graphic, anyway, would have a harder time building their shells. But it said that things without shells like um, kelp and phytoplankton and jellyfish wouldn't have uh, would be fine, and they would be winners in this future acidified ocean. And I was like, huh, I'm okay with the things that photosynthesize because actually they do do better in more acidic conditions. Mm -hmm. But what about those jellyfish? And so I dove into the scientific literature. And oh, that's another thing having a PhD does is it helps you not be afraid of scientific literature. Um, 
And I dove in and I discovered there were like really only two experiments on jellyfish and they were sort of amb ambiguous, like you couldn't tell if, if more acidity was better or worse for the jellyfish. Mm -hmm. And I also discovered there was this huge fight raging among the jellyfish scientists about what the future for jellyfish was, not just because of ocean acidity, but because of all these other things we were doing to the ocean, like overfishing it, mm -hmm. the warming was causing more low oxygen zones, which jellyfish seemed to tolerate better. The warming itself caused some jellyfish to reproduce faster. And all of the coastal development was providing habitat for one part of a jellyfish's life cycle called the polyp. Mm -hmm. And so there, but there were like, not like in, in sort of like the formal language of scientific literature, the scientists were screaming at each other. And I was like, what is happening here? And I um, just couldn't stop looking into the story of jellyfish after that. I love that. It, it's another one of those moments. It just kind of like sucked you in and changed. Yeah, totally. <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I learned so much reading your book about jellyfish. It was really fascinating read and I've recommended it to a few friends and they've enjoyed it and they're not marine scientists they just wanted a book to read and I was like oh, I just read this one. Oh, thank you that's cool so like a, a few crazy facts that I learned was jellies jellyfish may be the oldest animal on the planet um, possibly yeah I mean possibly. and so we should be a little careful um so they're you, they're comb jellies and they get to um they're, so they're kind of like a wildly different phylum from the the typical jellyfish yes. but ecologically they really always get clumped in together mm -hmm. because they're like they're gelatinous and they eat plankton mm -hmm. and they seem to reproduce in wildly explosive fashion just mm -hmm. so jellyfish do all those things in the ecosystem also um but these comb jellies like yeah if you haven't seen them google comb jelly and oh, they're so beautiful they're like in just they have these, they swim with these combs, basically they're cilia, but that's why they have the name comb jelly because mm -hmm. they have these rows of cilia and they diffract the light kind of the same way that the back of a CD, if, if anyone remembers what CD <laughs> look like, <laughs> but they use the same basically technology to break the light apart into its many rainbow colors. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, they're crazy beautiful. They are really beautiful. And it's one of, because people usually think anything jelly in the ocean, it will sting you. And yeah. It's one of my favorite things, like pick them up and have people freak out. <laughs> yeah. And also, and what's cool is they do have like an explosive cell, the same as jellyfish do, but at the end of it is sort of like a, I think of it as like a, those, um, oh, like a suction cup stopper with glue on the end of it. So they actually like, like suction cup onto the zo the you know the zooplankton that they eat yep. and then kind of reel them in. I think about it as like those cartoons where like people shot those arrows with suction cups and then like, yes. yeah anyway. <laughs> but they're voracious. Let me just say they are voracious. They are like some of the biggest predators in the sea, and they can clear uh, like a whole ocean basically of all the zooplankton rather quickly when their numbers get high. So. Which may be why they've lasted so long. Yeah, and they're also hermaphrodites, so you just need one to get a swarm, which is kind of cool. That is cool. 
I think it's fun how many things in the ocean are hermaphrodites. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, it's true. Coral are all hermaphrodites as well, mm-hmm. which I didn't really, they can't self-fertilize. Um, so they need two to, to, to have reproduction, but there's one coral. I was just um, in the Dominican Republic for the coral spawn this year. And there's a, a coral that everyone, all the scientists there called Romeo because he was such a big spawner. He, <laughs> he was really just prolific with his spawn. Okay. But, but Romeo turned into Juliet this year. <laughs> so is, is Juliet as prolific with her spawning? Well, actually, it's even more interesting. Only the top half is Juliet and the bottom half is still Romeo. <laughs> wow. So they, they released both, both gamings at the same time? Yeah. That's yeah. really cool. I know. Um, but I don't know the answer if, if Juliet is as prolific. Okay. <laughs> well, it's pretty impressive that Romeo and Juliet can be one and the same. And Isn't that cool? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Corals are fascinating. Yeah. We're trying to get to... Um, Sorry, yeah, I jumped there. Sure. Yeah, no, that's okay. So another thing we learned that they're nematocysts, which is their little firing, stinging cells that most people are afraid of, can move at like five million Gs, which I can't even, I don't, I'm not even sure how to put that into perspective. I don't either. I don't know how to, I don't know how to, it's, um, there's some super cool videos though of high speed cameras um, that are net catching, catching the stinging cells deploy. Uh, it's worth checking out. I, I can, if you want, I don't know if you'll have show notes, but I can send you a link afterwards. Yeah, that'd be great. I do have show notes. Yeah. And, and it's just amazing to see them fire and to think that something we think of as rather primitive has this extraordinary sophisticated, you know, weapon basically mm-hmm. that does everything for it. It, it captures its food and it, and it defends itself. And um, you know, it's probably so sophisticated that this one part of the jellyfish is, you know, I don't know, anatomy, I guess, has allowed the jellyfish to maintain its sort of simple form for all these millions of years. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I'm like, I bow in awe of the stinging cell, I guess. <laughs> it's really amazing. It truly is incredible. Their eyes totally fascinated me. Oh my gosh, their eyes. <laughs> I know. So could you kind of explain a little bit about jellyfish eyes and why it, well, one, they have eyes, which mm-hmm. most people don't realize, and two, yeah. what they function as on the jellyfish. Yeah, so um, when you're, like, if you're ever at an aquarium and you're looking at jellyfish, um, what you'll see is sort of around the edge of the bell, it, you'll see almost scallops. It's sort of scalloped. And, and so it, where two scallops come together, like where it kind of goes up, if you look very closely, you'll see this sort of intensified, you know, thing there. And, and that's an organ, and it holds the jellyfish's basic face. And so there's, there's something called a touch plate on it, which 
is like ciliated, it has a lot of cilia and they, they can, those cilia can sense water currents. They can also kind of basically taste the water. They can taste for chemicals in the water. Um, and then there's like eye spots. There's some light sensing regions on the Rapalia also. And there's a thing called a pacemaker there too, which controls how fast the jellyfish squeezes its bell closed and open. So all of those sensory organs are, are in one place and they're, um, oh, and also, sorry, there's one more thing. There's like um, a statusis. So it's, it's this sort of circular pocket with uh, a little pebble inside of it, basically. It's, it's a pocket made out of nerves and it's got a pebble and wherever the pebble rests, that is how the jellyfish knows where down is. And, and so that's kind of like the way our inner ears work. So I, I kind of went a little too far, but I, I think it's okay. So all of that is in on these repelia, and then there's several of them um, in multiples of four. So like the typical moon jelly, which is the most common jelly you'll see in Aquaria, which has kind of the clover on top, it has eight repelia, but some of jellyfish have 32 of them or whatever. So you can think about jellyfishes having many, many faces looking out into the world and and integrating all that information in, and that's how they respond to their environment. Um, but getting to the eye part, on a moon jelly, there's not a whole lot of um, focus or anything like that. There's Each repelia has two eye spots on it, on a moon jelly, and they probably are only capable of seeing some shadows and some light and dark. Um, so jellyfish are definitely respond to light and dark very well. They seem to respond to shadows. They definitely respond to sheer currents. Um, so they, they have complicated responses to things, but the, um, the box jellies, which are sort of one group of jellyfish, which, um, they, they have only have four repelia, but each one of their repelia has six eyes on it. And four of those eyes are kind of like just those light sensing eyes, like the, what I described for the moon jellyfish, but two of them actually have lenses and irises and retinas, just like our eyes do, which is absolutely extraordinary. And in fact, if you take and you dim the lights on, a, on one of these box jellyfish, its iris will open up to let in more light. And if you put bright light on it, its iris will contract to dim the light. Just and like ours. Just like ours do. And this is the craziest part, that the lens is sort of like a round, you know, like a marble. It's like a, a clear marble. Mm -hmm. And if you would think about making, like the way a marble's made, um, all of the material in a marble is equally distributed everywhere. There's, an, you know, it's, it's just kind of uniform. If you create a lens like that, it won't focus the light into a point. But in a jellyfish's, in the jellyfish's um, lens, it's actually packed, there's more heavily, more, it's packed more heavily towards the center and less heavily towards the outside, which actually allows the light to be focused down to a single point. And so, but the problem is the jellyfish's retina is not where that point focuses. It's actually in front of it. So there's like this huge mystery, like why would you spend the time creating 
a perfect lens if you can't take advantage of it? And also, how can a jellyfish even interpret an image that comes through a lens because it doesn't have a very complicated brain? So there's all these amazing questions about jellyfish eyes that, you know, we still don't know answers to, but yeah, they have really good eyes and it's amazing. And that's another cool thing to Google. Uh, I'll, I'll try to make a note to send, but if you Google like box jellyfish swimming, they swim like fish. They dive around poles. They can see and interpret where they're swimming. It's pretty, it's phenomenal. That really isn't phenomenal. Yeah. I like that you bring up box jellies because that was one of the other points is that they're actually one of the most toxic animals on the planet. They are. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so jellyfish told this place like in, in my psyche, I think, as like angel and double, like they are, they are absolutely stunningly beautiful to look at. You know, they are, they're, they're just extraordinarily gorgeous swimmers. You know, they seem to sort of float angelically in the water but they are yeah they are the most potentially toxic animal in the world um there's a couple jellyfish well there's there's one jellyfish that mostly lives um near australia and sort of like indonesia the philippines um that's said to be able to kill a person in minutes so um, is that if you're ever swimming in those waters <laughs> Three minutes, yeah. Three minutes. Um, it, three minutes, yeah. And they're very small, or the size. Oh well, they're they're not that small. They're like a softball size. So, okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so if you're swimming in those waters, you should wear a stinger suit. Um, and they tend to respond very. They're very sensitive to like the moon and the sun, they probably come up to the surface to mate with each other. Um, so pay attention to local conditions and talk to the lifeguards about, you know, if it is a box jelly season or not. Um, it, that Yeah, that's very important. And then one last thing, I guess, while we're on the topic of stinging, um, when I was writing the book, there was a lot of controversy about what you should do for jellyfish stings. Mm -hmm. Since the book was <laughs> since the book was published, it's become rather um, clear. There's better guidelines on that, and so the two things that will disable a jellyfish sting or or lessen it are um, vinegar and heat. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to a beach and you're concerned about that. Um, bringing like one of those instant heat things with you if you could pack that and then a little bottle of vinegar are two really good things to just kind of have handy great advice don't pee on the jellyfish thing yeah the, well the pee is warmish <laughs> but um yeah vinegar and heat are, are two things that even for box jelly stings are seem to to be recommended now okay great advice thank you for sharing that yeah. So your research for your book took you all over the world. I mean, you were in the U.S. to go jelly ball fishing. And yeah. you also went back to Israel, to Japan, back to Italy. What were some of your highlights from each place? Well, it was really fun to go back to a lot of the places I had gone in grad school mm -hmm. to, to, to write the book. And, and I think part of the book was kind of coming to the terms that I did fall off the academic path because I felt a lot of guilt about that. Um, and I, 
I think I needed to sort of reckon with my past in some ways. And, and so going back to these places and talking to the scientists who work there about jellyfish sort of had this other ulterior motive, like this personal motive of dealing with who I used to be and who I thought I was going to be when I was in grad school and then who I turned out to be. Um, and so, yeah, so those personal things were interesting to me, you know, just being back in Woods Hole and having the feeling of, wow, this place meant so much to me at one point in my life um, was really powerful. You know, that I got to talk to people about ro robotic jellyfish there was like icing on the cake. <laughs> uh, but like, but um, and then, you know, Japan was certainly like trying to see the giant jellyfish was just this amazing sort of adventure. And I felt like I was living out a little bit of like, oh, if National Geographic would have really hired me, this is the kind of thing I would have done. <laughs> but like, I definitely felt like I was on a Nat Geo adventure with you. Yeah, I mean, the book. <laughs> right. Um, but you know, what was the most interesting about that was I had like all these like ideas in my mind, like I'm going to get in the water with the giant jellyfish and, mm -hmm. and get to photograph it. And, and then it, that became impossible because we really needed these industrial nets from a big fishing boat to, to get to see the giant jellyfish. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, once we pulled it up and put it on the back of the boat, I, I felt, I know everyone's probably had this, I don't know, but I, 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 I think everyone's had this feeling of like, you know, you've got this thing you're in search of and you, or this expectation. I mean, even a birthday can sometimes feel this way where like, oh, it's gonna be so great. And then you get there and, and it's just kind of not as great as you had envisioned or had hoped or felt thought, thought. And that's what it felt like when we got the giant jellyfish. Um, and I, I don't know how much of that was mixed with like sort of sadness that it was dying also. Mm -hmm. um, you know, intellectually, I know that this jellyfish probably only had a couple more months anyway, because they only live about six months as Medusa. Um, and it probably had already spawned. So like evolutionarily it, it done it, it had done its business, but I still felt, um, yeah, it just didn't feel any, anything like what I was thinking it was going to feel. So that was, that was pretty interesting. Um, Israel, uh, well, I don't know if I want to ruin the whole book, but like, <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, Israel was really weird because like I said, I had a terrible experience there and I really didn't want to go back. Mm -hmm. And then there, there was, you had such a serendipitous experience in Israel. Yeah. I think that was probably the, the most, I mean, that had to have been your highlight of that trip. Yeah, that was crazy. You know, like yeah. there was this bloom of jellyfish that I had heard about. I'd seen on Facebook and Twitter, there was this huge bloom of jellyfish and it's sort of a long story, but one of the kind of like growing a spine pieces of that book was me getting the story in the New York Times about the Suez Canal, which was, um, was going to be the the jellyfish scientists in Italy told me the story about how the Suez Canal was being expanded um, and no environmental 
impact assessment was being done in violation of like four international treaties. Mm-hmm. And I realized like no one was telling the story and I had the ability to do it. So it was basically, I had to step into that role of, of saying, hey, look, this is not okay. And I pitched it to the New York Times, which was sort of intimidating. <laughs> and, but they took the story and published it. And I thought, well, now something will be done some of these treaties will be enforced, but that was really naive of me. Um, treaties are often violated and, and that's just, especially in the ocean. And, and that's a, a real big problem we still have today. Um, anyway, <laughs> there was a, an invasive jellyfish that had probably already gone through the canal earlier, but that was now, um, had had sort of taken up residence on the, in the eastern Mediterranean off the coast of Israel and also Lebanon and Tunisia. And it's a bad, bad stinger and it clogs power plant intake um, machinery. And so this jellyfish was predicted to get worse mm-hmm. um, as the canal was widened and no... Um, nothing was done to prevent the movement of invasive species from the Indian Ocean into the Mediterranean. So I was following the story, and it ended up my trip to Israel was coincident with this like huge bloom of this nomadic jellyfish. And I really wanted to see it, but like basically every beach I went to, people were like, "Oh, you just missed them." And so I, <laughs> um, I had like, like one more day left, and anyway, I ended up going to driving up to the this beach near Haifa, not even knowing what I was looking for, basically. And this one dude whose name I had ends up like standing up, out like rising up out of the water like a kind of like a, a rising sea monster with this giant camera. And and I was like, well, I didn't know it was the dude at that point I just saw this like diver like stand up out of this huge bloom of jellyfish and I walk up to him and I'm like are you Moti Mendelssohn and he's like yeah how did you know my name (laughs) and it was this it was like this like I knew one person's name in all of Haifa and he like happened to like rise up out of the water right in front of me at the very circumstances that got you to that moment to that exact point in time that did and didn't happen so yeah, I think that was one of my favorite parts of the storytelling in the book. I mean, the jellyfish facts are just unreal, and we barely scratched the surface with them, but just the serendipi- serendipitous moment of, like, you finding those jellies in Israel. was like, wow. It was crazy. It <laughs> feels crazy to me. And and it, I think one of the things that I I just kind of hold on to about that moment, because it, it is weird. Like, it, the beach, I should say, like, the Haifa beach is, 15 or 20 miles long. It's huge. And I just happened to pull over and park in this one spot where like he ends up coming up out of the water at that same moment. Anyway, um, I think one of the cool things about that story, and this is, you know, I think when you start looking for something, um, if you don't ever go looking, you're never going to find it. So like, that's kind of the message that sticks with me is like, things will go wrong. And, and you're, and that kind of moment is, is probably never, ever going to happen to me again in my life. 
But if I hadn't have gone looking, that moment would have never happened. Mm -hmm. So like, if you want something, you have to at least go looking. That like, that's the first, first thing you have to do along the way. So I don't know, I, I hope that that came across in the book that. Yes. Yeah, okay, good. <laughs> yeah. No, I love it. So yeah. I have a, a couple questions from listeners. Actually, one of them is who recommended the, your book to me. Okay. Um, she's interested in being a science writer as well. And she's curious kind of what the path was to get to where you wrote Spineless. And from reading the book and from what you've just said, it, it just sounded like, it was a path of curiosity to build this book. Did you already have like a book deal before that or mm. kind of wrote it because this is something that you felt you needed to write and then kind of found something after that? Yeah. Okay. So, um, I, I hope I'm not, it, well, what happened was I was writing, like I said, I had, I had become, I had come up on off the academic path and become a writer and I had a few um, magazine gigs I was working on. Mm -hmm. And um, this one, um, well, this photographer from National Geographic named David Lichwager had asked me to write a book. He was, it was a photography book. Okay. And um, I was, I've always been like a huge reader. And I think I always like imagined writing a book would be like way something that I wasn't, I could never do. Like mm -hmm. I told you how intimidated I was by my roommate in college. Right. And, um, and a book just seemed like more than I was capable of. <laughs> but then David asked me to write this book and I sat down and I wrote the first chapter and I really like, I tried my, I put everything I had into it and I didn't hear back about it and I didn't hear back about it. And finally he contacted, well, his publisher contacted me and said, you know what, we're going to, um, have people who are more famous than you write this book. <laughs> and so, but in that moment, I kind of realized, you know what? I think I, I think I'm, I was 43. I think I'm gonna, if I'm ever going to write a book, now's the time. Yeah. So I think that when I came across the jellyfish story, um, I was looking for a story. I was looking for a story that was big enough to be a book. Okay. And so I started basically just writing it. The way that you write a non, the way you get a nonfiction book sold is by writing what's called a book proposal. Mm -hmm. And it's, it can be, can take on many forms, but basically you have to have a couple chapters written. You have to have an outline for the book. Um, it's better if you have some sort of marketing plan or um, you have to, you know, you include your, you know what the market for the book is. Um, you can look online and there's examples of book proposals, but that's how you get a nonprofit book sold. And that that's different from a fiction book where you have to have the whole thing written. Mm -hmm. So I knew I wanted to at least get to the point of writing a book proposal. Um, so I did some research, as I talk about in the book, like every family vacation became a jellyfish vacation. Mm -hmm. And I also um, started treating it like a, a Elizabeth Gilbert has a really cool TED talk, I think, about creativity mm -hmm. and how you have to kind of have a relationship with your creativity where you nurture it every day. So mm -hmm. even if you can't, like, even if I couldn't work on the jellyfish 
book some days because I was doing other work, I kept a jelly journal. And some days I just wrote in the journal, I can't write on, I can't work on my jellyfish book today. But I started being quite disciplined about like taking it seriously. Like this is going to be a book or at least a book proposal. And, um, and, and, and really committing to it. And so I got to the point of after about, I want to say it took me a full year or maybe even more, probably 18 months to get to the point of having a book proposal. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'd done some travel, like I'd gone to Alabama, I'd gone to meet a paleontologist in Colorado, and I'd gone out to the West Coast and gone to Monterey Bay and um, San Francisco and met with some scientists there as parts of like family trips. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had some stuff written and I put together a proposal and then I started asking friends who had books to, if I could send the proposal to their agents. And I kept getting like, I had a, so you ha- I had a pitch letter, mm-hmm. um, which was sort of just two paragraphs on what the book was. And I would send the pitch letter to their, to people's agents. And I also cold pitched some agents and they would all be like, Oh, this sounds great. Send me your proposal. And I did. And they'd be like, you know, we love your proposal, but we don't see that there's a market for a book about jellyfish. (laughs) And, and that went on for like about another year. So now I'm two and a half years in and I, um, I was getting, sad, but I kept writing it because I really enjoyed writing it. Um, And somehow my proposal fell into the hands of um, an academic publisher here in Texas at Trinity University Press, which is a really excellent academic press. And the um, literary director there loved the proposal. Um, And she wanted to buy it and made me an offer. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Like my book is actually going to get out into the world. Like this is, this is fantastic. And so I, um, but I reached out to a friend of mine who I knew had published a book. And I said, do you have any on like my contract? And he said, I think you need to talk to an agent. And I said, well, I've been trying to talk to an agent for like a year now and I can't get one to talk to me. And he's like, I bet you can now. And so uh, he gave me the name of two agents and actually both of them wanted to talk to me now. So I had basically, there was, I don't know, you know, there was blood in the water. An agent gets just like on a house, the sale of a house, an agent gets um, 15%. So it's, mm-hmm. so it's a set price. Um, and one of those agents said, I think this is a commercial book. I think you can sell it to a commercial publisher instead of an academic publisher Mm. and do you want to work on that and I'm like yes that was actually always my vision for this book because I really always had written it not as an academic book but as a book like you said that um, my um, audience was always my sister who's not at all scientific (laughs) has never read anything scientific but she's really like smart and curious and she's and so I was always writing for her I wanted it to be a book that people who aren't scientists would enjoy And so um, I worked with that agent on the proposal. And the proposal, I should say, had had gone through many iterations by this point. And it was was like 70 pages long. It had 
probably four chapters in it and a full, um, a really strong chapter by chapter outline. Um, and so we worked on the proposal for like a couple weeks and then it sold really quickly. Amazing. Uh, mm -hmm. So that's kind of the whole story. What's the impact that you've seen from the publication of your book? What kind of impact do you mean? So have you noticed, I don't know, have, has the scientific community kind of like reached out to you with more information? Are you, con are you, are people kind of regarding you as the jellyfish expert? Like what? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, I do get, I do get asked to be kind of a jellyfish expert sometimes, but I, <laughs> I think there's better ones out there. Um, you know, someone who, if you're interested in jellyfish science, Rebecca Helm, um, I think her Twitter is ocean, open ocean exploration, something like that. but anyway, you can find Rebecca Helm is doing an amazing job, um, as a, as a, like a jellyfish communicator right now. She just, she has fantastic Twitter following and she posts all these incredible things. In fact, yesterday, I'm not sure if you guys saw it, but you should go look. Um, the Schmidt expedition, they're, they're like a big underwater expedition group. They found a siphonophore, which is a, a jellyfish colony, mm. kind of like Portuguese man of war. Okay, this thing is a, a galaxy. The, it's, it's, it's a spiral. It's holding itself in a spiral. And the outer ring of the spiral is 154 feet. Oh my God. And yeah, I mean, you and it looks like it's floating on some sort of like pycnocline, which is like a density layer in the deep ocean. It usually siphonophores when, when deep sea vehicles see them, they get like twisted and torn up and all out of position. This one is just holding its, it's, it's the most beautiful thing ever. Anyway, Rebecca, is is always posting and commenting on on crazy cool jellyfish so very cool um that's not an answer to your question i think um the biggest impact for me was that i was able to sell a book on coral rather easily to my same publisher um and which has been which is sort of my dream like remember what i i worked on coral back in grad school in that swimming pool <laughs> And so I think I've always wanted to write a book on coral. Um, and so now I, I, I have that incredible opportunity. And that's coming out next year, 2021, correct? Correct. Yeah. I'm excited for that one. I oh, love thank you. It's one of my favorite, it's one of my favorite ocean creatures and I really enjoyed Spineless. So I'm excited for your next book. Thank you. This one's a hard one to write. Um, coral are in rough shape right now. Mm, I'm sure. And aren't you traveling a lot for this book as well? I mean, you just said you went to the DR for it. Yes. And I went to Indonesia where there's, and I saw the greatest, the biggest coral restoration project in the world, mm. which is amazing. Um, actually the Mars candy bar company has created that restoration, which is kind of unexpected. Mm. And I was supposed to be in Australia right now, but yeah, but COVID. hopefully that trip will be rescheduled. Okay. Wonderful. We yeah. have to have you back on and chat more about curls, which we didn't yeah. get into it all today. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so two more questions before I let you go. Um, I always like to leave the audience with a conservation ask, and you had a really great, great one about how my audience can kind of get more involved with climate, which we chatted a little bit about in this episode. Yeah. Okay. So I, you know, for me, the biggest, interestingly enough, like the biggest issue for the oceans is in my opinion, it's climate change. Mm -hmm. um, 
the oceans have taken up a disproportionate amount of the heat that we've added to our atmosphere, you know, because of back to the whole carbon dioxide in the atmosphere issue. Um, so 93% of the heat that carbon dioxide holds has already gone into the oceans. And so the oceans are warming at an alarming pace and that has huge impacts um, for lots of lots, lots of things, but particularly coral, because I'm sure I, when coral warm a, a couple degrees by, for a couple weeks, they bleach and they lose the algae that feed them sugar that live like a photosynthetic tattoo in their tissues. And when they bleach, they weaken, they start starving. And if it goes on too long, they die. And every coral reef in the world has been impacted by bleaching already. The, the Great Barrier Reef is currently undergoing its most extensive bleaching of all time. And it's the third bleaching in the last five years. Mm. So what we do up here on land matters extraordinary a lot. And I was always kind of, um, I always felt like, well, I have an electric car, you know, I, I have wind powering my house, but like, these are just drops in the bucket. Mm -hmm. And that is sort of a, a hard place to, to be. And um, then I found this group called Citizens Climate Lobby and their whole, um, the whole thing that they are about is putting a price on carbon dioxide pollution. Mm -hmm. And they, I love the idea behind what they stand for, which is called carbon fee and dividend. So the idea is that you would basically put a fee on carbon at the point of extraction, which is like where the oil companies pump it out of the ground or the coal companies dig it out of the ground. Those people who do that have to pay. Um, and they pay, it's, it's, very, it's very set. It's $15 a ton going up $5 a ton for the first five years or until you get to $40 a ton, which is basically the, the amount that we should be charging people to extract carbon dioxide mm. and, or carbon. Mm -hmm. um, it's not carbon dioxide till we burn it. <laughs> um, and then what happens is those revenues, those fees get collected by the government and then redistributed to taxpayers on a per capita basis. So every person gets an equal share, every taxpayer gets an equal share and children get half share. And um, that redisperse, that, that, you know, disbursement um, offsets any increases in electrical prices that people will experience by putting a price on carbon. Mm -hmm. But the idea let's it's 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 interesting there's i think there's something like 500 economists including like 30 nobel prize winning economists who've signed on to this idea of carbon fee and dividend it's something that people on the left and the right can support because it doesn't grow the government which is a strong issue that um conservatives have with a lot of with increasing taxes and it doesn't increase regulation. It just kind of says, look, carbon dioxide is a pollutant. Let's, right, let's charge people for polluting like we do with all other kinds of pollutants and then let the market figure out how it wants to respond to that. So it, 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 doesn't, put, it doesn't grow the government in terms of regulation. It just puts a fee in it. So what's really also interesting is um, British Columbia has had a carbon fee and dividend for the last five years. Mm -hmm. 
and it's gone really well. Their carbon, their carbon emissions are, are down, their economy, I mean, now we're sort of in this COVID crisis, but aside from that, their economy has, has done just fine using carbon fee and dividend. And um, if we could get that passed here in the United States, it would, it would change everything. So um, there's a bill in Congress that Citizens Climate Lobby has advanced. It's, it's, it's um, in the House and it was um, sponsored. It's a bipartisan support. So there's Republicans and Democrats on it. It's HR uh, 573. And um, so what I do is I write to my Congress people and I ask them to support that bill. I write op-eds in the local newspaper here in Austin and talk about carbon fee and dividend. And I write letters to the editor whenever I can. Also talking about carbon fee and dividend just to get, get the word out. Um, and so, yeah, my ask is that if you're interested in this kind of thing, Citizens Climate Lobby really helped me learn how to write op-eds and letters to the editor and to make appointments with my Congress people. And if you feel like this is a place you'd like to get involved, um, I'd urge you to check out Citizens Climate Lobby because they're really great um, resource. And I think that the, the idea of carbon fee and dividend is, is a game changer. It's wonderful. I really like that you can do this from anywhere too. You don't have to be by the ocean. Yeah, um, right. Anywhere, mm -hmm. anywhere you live. Right, right. Well, where can the audience find you if they want to learn more about you and your books? That's my, <laughs> my website is um, www.julie, and it's just J-U-L-I, uh, Burwald, B-E-R-W-A-L-D.com. And there's a lot of my writing. I occasionally add my blog there. I update it with events, places where I'm speaking. I'll put a link to that and everything that we've chatted about today in the show notes. It'll be marinebio.life. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah. Well, Julie, this has been so much fun. I feel like there's so much more I wanted to chat with you about, so we might have to have you back on the show. But thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's been such fun. Thank you for asking me to dive deep into all these questions. I don't talk about it very often. So it was really cool. And um, yeah, and I'm, you know, I'm available. There's a contact page on my website if anyone wants to reach out. Hey, do you want to help the oceans? Have you considered a career in marine biology, but maybe just aren't sure where to start? Head on over to my website, marinebio.life and subscribe to my newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll receive a free PDF download where you'll learn the seven steps to becoming a marine biologist without the degree. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight for me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community one person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. <laughs>